Sisters and brothers in Christ, grace and peace to you this day from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. So I have a confession for you this morning that when we make the decision to preach on texts like the epistle texts, like we're doing right now from 2 Corinthians, it gives me a little bit of anxiety. And for me, this happens for a couple of reasons. First being, well, we don't do it very often. The epistle texts usually are meant to support our gospel themes and are maybe used for a Bible study or to lead a church council retreat theme or something along those lines. We also like to use little pieces of these texts usually for special occasions like weddings or funerals. And some of what we hear from these texts has even been mainstreamed. Like 1 Corinthians 13, everybody knows that love is patient and love is kind, right? The second reason is that the context that many of the epistles are speaking into can be a little challenging, both to the ears and to matters of faith. They can be fairly narrow in their scope at times. Now, all the books that in the Bible which are attributed specifically to St. Paul's authorship are really directly speaking to various situations that were either happening in the church or he is encouraging a fellow missionary in their work. And for this reason, it can be very easy to find myself drawn into the underlying specifics of a certain text. In the instance of both 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Paul is writing to a church congregation that is in turmoil. It is divided for many reasons and because of that is in danger of failure. The church at Corinth was established during Paul's second missionary journey, some 18 years or so after Christ's crucifixion. Corinth sits just west of Athens in Greece. And Paul had stayed with the Corinthians for about a year and a half while he helped them to establish their church before he moved on. But shortly after his departure, there were several things that start to cause issues. And so after Paul leaves, other super apostles start to undermine his authority. Cultural issues creep back into the church, pagan religious practices as well. There was infighting amongst the people themselves, and there was pushback against the church in Jerusalem. So shortly after Paul leaves, he has a series of letter exchanges with the Corinthians, and it seems that with each correspondence that we hear from 1st and 2nd Corinthians, tension increases. The relationship with Paul and the church becomes more contentious. Now as we hear what was going on in that particular instance and in that particular context, I think in the midst of all of that, it's not too hard to take a look around and see some things ourselves. Some issues going on in our own time. It certainly generates questions about what we as the church focus on at times. Why we do what we do and how we do it. There has certainly been a perspective and challenge of the changing landscape of who we are as the modern church. Maybe not specifically First Lutheran Church, but in a broader sense. Where politics guides religion, where culture defines your identity. And if that isn't enough, we even tell God who he is. Where upholding tradition, heritage, and Lutheran orthodoxy is wrong. Where you're binding the proclamation of the gospel by controlling who steps into the pulpit, 
based on a political perspective. Where seminaries are training up community organizers and motivational speakers rather than preachers. Where we have lost our sense of Christian community and what it means to care for one another. Where individual factions within the congregations argue over petty things. Where we hear admonishment between people that says, well, that's not Christian. What does that even mean? That somehow you see yourself better than a sinner? Where we come to only see the church as a guide to our moral compass. Where conversations about faith are no longer spoken in the home. We don't teach our children the great Bible stories because that's someone else's job. That our own sense of purpose is purely defined by getting ahead in this world. And where we do not believe that God tells us in his word that we can pick and choose what suits us. Well, it's no wonder there are challenges in the church. Yet I digress. St. Paul writes in our text for today, as we work together with Christ, we urge you to also not accept God's grace in vain. Now what does that mean? What does it look like to receive the grace of God in vain? What does it mean to be a recipient of God's grace, but that it has no power or authority in your life? Lutheran theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer coined the phrase, cheap grace and costly grace in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. And Bonhoeffer writes, costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for. It is the door at which a person must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a person their life. And it is grace because it gives a person the only true life. Bonhoeffer speaks of the other type of grace, cheap grace, this way. He says that cheap grace is justification of sin without repentance. It is the kind of forgiveness that frees us from the burden of sin when we are repentant. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. It is baptism without church discipline. It is communion without confession. It is absolution without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, and grace without Jesus Christ. And I think that it is this cheap grace that Paul is speaking into. What good is grace if it's ineffective, if it is empty? What good is the favor of God if it makes absolutely no difference in the life of a sinner? And how is this word of grace and mercy bestowed if the church does not speak it? This last Wednesday at Bible study, I asked those who attended if they were okay to die today. Well, I'll ask you the same. It's not a question I ask philosophically, but maybe a little bit rhetorically. Do you fear what dying means? Are there buts in your answers? Things that you still think you need to take care of? 
Do you fear what lies beyond the grave? Now, friends, the underlying theme to our lectionary for today is to know and trust that in the face of all the challenges in our world that we see around us, and inasmuch as we believe that we have any sense of power or control over the things in this life, I'm here to tell you it's a facade. It's an illusion. Because it is God who is faithful. It is the power of God's mighty word that changes lives and creates anew. It is God who is in control. And nothing happens outside of God's will and purpose. Now I know as we sit in that, that can be troubling. Because like old Job, we see the challenges of living our lives in this old world, and yet God's words are on point for him. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? That statement can be equally offensive as it is comforting, depending on where your conscience is today, right? God's word strikes again at the heart of the human condition, fueled by original sin, which means to undermine our trust in God. God's word striking in a prosecutorial fashion. Who do you think you are? And here is where Paul, I think, does his best work. Paul speaks to the Corinthians and to us that the matters we get caught up in at the end of the day are not the mission of the church. The true mission of the church is to preach the gospel, to declare Christ crucified and risen, to declare to you the forgiveness of sins, to rightly administer the sacraments, making and strengthening faith, and to go and make disciples for Jesus Christ. This is the tradition, the heritage, and the orthodoxy that we are called to as God's people. Now in our gospel text from Mark chapter 4 today, we see and understand who God is in the person of Jesus Christ. On that day, he spoke a promise to the disciples in a unique way, and yet when the struggles of the day come, most specifically the storm on the sea, which they as fishermen knew would happen on the Sea of Galilee, it batters not only their boat, but it batters their sense of faith, their sense of power and control, and it batters their understanding of who Jesus is. But we find Jesus not afraid. In fact, he sleeps because he knows who is in control. He does not fear death because he has come to conquer and defeat death. And he even has the authority to tell the sea to stop speaking. Stop making fear. And so he speaks a new word, peace, be still. He speaks this same word to you today. And God's word does what it says. In our 2 Corinthians text, Paul quotes the bold words from Isaiah chapter 49. Now is the acceptable time and now is the day of salvation. And now to you, even through the struggles of this day, the Holy Spirit has managed to bring you to this place so that your ears can hear this promise again that you are his beloved and on you his favor rests and that there is nothing in this world he does not control. 
He forgives your sins and tells you that the matters of this world do not define you. Sin does not win the day. Division does not win the day. The things of this world to want to separate you from God actually do not win the day. And God enfolds you in his grace and his mercy so that it is not in vain. Not telling you to go and do more, but telling you what he has done, what he has already accomplished for you. God's word and his love has come to you now, a sinner, and in hearing it and trusting it, he makes you a saint. So that you may go back out into the world knowing that he is in control and that while you may have struggles in this life, they are not your destiny. Now Christ has defeated sin and he has defeated death. And for those baptized into Christ, just like we got to witness for little Christian this morning, these things do not define who you are or the rest of eternity. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Know it, trust in it, cling to it for all your worth. And above all, peace be still. Thanks be to God. Amen.